This podcast is by G. Wayne Miller for the Providence Journal. The concern is more around that in the United States, we hear a worship um, people in our history that have been really quite detrimental to other communities of people. And in the case of Columbus, you know, there's this notion that, you know, we're being unfair because, you know, thinking of Italian Americans and, and that this is a uh, someone to celebrate. And I push back on that a little bit in that um, we certainly honor Italian culture and we think that they should find someone different to celebrate than someone who brought um, conquest and uh, genocide and land dispossession and disease and um, slavery or enslavement to the Americas. Um, Columbus is a symbol of conquest. And conquest from my perspective and from others is about um, greed it's the the idea of going other places to to um, through force get resources and so in the case of the americas those resources were the resources of the land of the water human resources and when columbus you know who was trying to find an alternate route uh to asia um stumbled upon these islands in the Atlantic um, and, and frankly had some trouble and got shipwrecked and even had the, the nerve, in my opinion, to um, talk about how gracious the Arawak or Taino people were in helping them uh, unload their ships so they didn't lose all of their resources. And then in the next breath basically said, and with, you know, and with um, 20 men, we could subjugate them all. So they were using um, their greed for the resources, for the gold that they thought was there, for um, you know the the animal life, the things that they could bring back with them. Um, so there was this greed, and then I always like to say the opposite side of greed is need, and the need the people that usually follow the conquerors usually need, and so that's important to think about because I'll get back to that in a minute. They use power, military power, you know, a weaponry power, political power, economic power. And of course, Columbus was using all that power from the king and queen of Spain. He didn't have it on his own. He had it with their resources. Then entitlement. And that entitlement is the notion of going to a new place where there are people and civilizations and nations living and using those powers to stick a flag in the ground and, and claim the space for themselves. And that's that entitlement, that notion that you have the right to do that. And, and in their mind, they believe that they have the right to do that, despite the fact that it's subjugating other people. And then they use fear. They breed fear and hate um, so that people become fearful of the people that they're actually um, subjugating and enslaving and uh, dehumanizing and so forth and then the last thing they do is they take away their voice and it's called censorship something that the media certainly fights not to have happen to them 
and indigenous people were censored so that they didn't have a voice. They didn't have a voice in the media, didn't have a voice in the political process, didn't have a voice about, um, you know, representation. If you don't have representation for yourself in, in a good way, then people represent you in a negative way. And that leads all the way to the conquest of this, of this you know, the, the land that this country is now on, um, using those same tactics. Um, and the people that followed, they believed the rhetoric, if you will. I mean, the Declaration of Independence here in this country calls us merciless Indian savages whose known rules of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Talk about dehumanizing and vilifying right in the founding doctrine, despite the fact that indigenous people fought for the creation of this country. You know, um, we're erased even in that. I uh, worked with Robert Geek on that book, From Slaves to Soldiers, um, the first Rhode Island Regiment in the American Revolution. Um, and part of the reason we were working on that book together is the goal of, of telling the stories of the indigenous people in that regiment. They often name that regiment the Black Regiment, and that completely erases the indigenous people that were in that regiment, which there were quite a few. Um, and not only that, but there were actually white people in the regiment too. <laughs> you know, so there's this notion of, of choice of words that erases people. Um, so when I think of why people have pushed back and have felt that we should be calling this Indigenous Peoples Day, it's about telling truths. It's about telling the full history. Um, it's about giving voice to indigenous people and recognizing that we're on indigenous land. We're on, uh, uh, you know, the Americans are on occupied indigenous land. And that is um, something that is important for people to recognize and for schools to start teaching the truth. Um, we do a lot of um, work with school districts, but it's so piecemeal. Um, you know, I'm 54 years old and I feel like I've been doing this work my whole entire life in different kinds of ways. Um, and generations before me, my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, Princess Red Wing's generation, there's a letter in our archive uh, somewhere, I've read it before, um, but that speaks to, she'd written to the commissioner of education about inclusive inclusivity of indigenous history and culture. And back then, you know, 60, 70 years ago, they were not interested in even hearing the conversation at all. Today, they're more receptive to hearing it, but there's no real strategy happening in which is including it pervasively statewide, never mind countrywide, but let's just go with Rhode Island for now and Rhode Island's history. There is no Rhode Island history without Narragansett, Niantic, and other indigenous people's histories. There is no U.S. history without indigenous people's history. And as that warrior woman exhibit is, you know, just giving you a little glimmer of, indigenous people serve in all walks of life in this country. We are impactful across this nation in a myriad of ways. And we've been part of this history the whole entire time. And so it's a disservice to everyone, to every student, to teach about indigenous people in a piecemeal way with a special little fanciful unit at Thanksgiving that often doesn't tell truths either. Um, and then the rest of the year, you never mention indigenous people again. I, I even uh, 
complained not too long ago at the Secretary of State's um, archive. They had a timeline on the wall and they were talking about the census. And they did tell me that that timeline had been there for some other exhibit and then they just sort of retrofitted it to fit for the census exhibit. But that just proved my point. <laughs> Native people were before time, you know, before colonies became a thing here. And then they, we were mentioned again. And when I say indigenous people, um, the Narragansett were mentioned before time and the Wampanoag were mentioned at King Philip's War as though we weren't part of that and as though King's uh, Great Swamp Massacre didn't happen. And then indigenous people were never mentioned again. You know, no mention of when we became citizens, no mention of when in Rhode Island we got the actual right to vote, no mention of, you know, uh, the Land Claim Settlement Act, no mention of the federal recognition in 1983, never mind a myriad of other things that could have been said along the way. But even just one or two of those subsequent ones would have done what was necessary, which is to make the people that are reading that timeline no, we are still here. This is our homeland. We still exist and we are still here. And we are part of the fabric of this, this state and this nation, even though we have a nation to nation relationship with the US federal government. You know, my, I'm a citizen of the Narragansett Nation and I'm a citizen of the United States. And our leaders, our tribal government, um, you know, they have a nation to nation relationship. You know, as a museum, I'm just educating the public about that. That's my role. You know, Tomaquag Museum is an independent nonprofit organization. We're 62 years old. Um, and, you know, the whole point is to educate, you know, the public. But through our museum, we also have the opportunity to engage the native population um, and share skills um, through our indigenous empowerment network to, um, you know, give educational opportunities and job and career opportunities to Native youth, um, which we have Native youth interns, um, high school and college students currently. Um, we have um, in our gift shop, as I showed you earlier, we, have, we work with over 35 local Native artists um, helping to empower their small arts businesses. We've given small business training, entrepreneurship training. Um, we set up and create opportunities for exhibits and art markets and partnership. In the last couple of years, we've done a show at the University of Rhode Island. We've done one at the Hera Gallery. We've done some with um, the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts Atrium Gallery. The list goes on. And the opportunities, the, the goal is to empower Native artists, Native youth, um, the Native community in every way that we possibly can through um, through our building a network of partners. So um, our newest two interns um, are through a partnership with the National Park Service, something that we worked on for the last like five years to get it to come to be. Um, and those interns, um, due to COVID, we reduced the number of interns at one time. Originally it was supposed to be four, um, but we reduced it to two just so that we could reduce how many people were in a building. Um, and so they'll, spend the majority of their time with us, but then they'll get these wonderful opportunities to, to visit the National Park Service and learn about the career opportunities that are there. Um, we're gonna do those, you know, the, everything's switched from COVID issues, but 
um, we're going to um, do like those field trips probably in the spring. We need to think about in this country how we memorialize and that is that structure of memorialization a structure that reinforces um, conquest, that reinforces white supremacy, that continues to divide the, the nation of people that live here today, that subjugates certain communities. Um, I personally feel, and I've been on several committees and been asked about this a lot, I feel that the Italian-American community should be honored and should be respected, but I think that they need to pick someone who was more meaningful in the actual experience here in the United States um, and or a better figure from long ago that represents Italian culture that does not also represent all those negative conquests uh, frameworks of, of subjugation and enslavement and, you know, uh, genocide. So I think that that should be something. And I think that those statues that are floating around this nation should go to museums where people can be educated around the history fully. You know, I don't believe just putting a little placard next to one of those statues is enough. I think people need to be educated about it um, fully not just one viewpoint i'm fine with multiple viewpoints but they need to do that in an educational setting where people scaffold down and actually dig deep in the history so that they get a full understanding before they make their decision not just um little short sound bites on on a placard that in a park most people aren't even going to bother to read teachers work really hard i was a classroom teacher they work really hard but as many of them tell me the resources they're given or that they have often don't give this narrative, um, this perspective, this full understanding. You know, if a, a teacher is given the little Columbus poem to do with, with first graders, and that's where it ends, you know, you have the one day, you read a book, you sing the poem, and then you move on, well, guess what? Then that's all they know. But we keep reinforcing that same narrative over and over again about the discovery doctrine. And the discovery doctrine allows that erasure of indigenous people as being here and as being nations on this land prior to someone else stumbling along here to this, you know, I'll call it continent, um, to this, this area of the Americas, because it's more than just one continent. Um, it's something that we're just starting to reflect on as a country. And I think that as we continue to really unpack the history and start teaching it more fully, um, the, the thing I'll say is this, when I, I co-taught a class at Brown on indigenous rights and environmental justice, 
and I taught a class at URI on indigenous literature. And the one at URI was with honor students. Um, and one of the things that I will say that particularly the URI students, because a lot of them were freshmen, said is that they were just so frustrated that they were honor students good you know students that thought they had a good k-12 education and they didn't know any of this so what happened is because we were reading indigenous literature i ended up having to teach all the history because they just didn't know the history in order to to you know sort of dissect the literature um and so that, that was the thing that i took from that class is like how little students learn k-12 and it's because it's segmented. It's it's in these little pockets of, you know, let's tell a little something about Native people at Thanksgiving. We'll tell the, the, the fanciful story. And then it's really not mentioned again. If at all, it's only in westward expansion and we're all gone because, you know, these wars happened and that's the end of it. And so there's no weaving of indigenous culture throughout the, the history. I mean, I said it already. There is no U.S. history without indigenous people's history. There is no Rhode Island history without Narragansett, Niantic, and other indigenous people's history. 